This is Audio Immunity, a podcast about our body's never-ending fight with the outside world. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Audio Immunity. This is Matt Woodruff, and with me today is Kevin Bonham. Hello, hello. Uh, unfortunately, Kate is not able to join us today. She had an emergency dentist appointment, so hopefully... Yeah, I have no idea what that even means. Yeah, I don't either. I hope all of her teeth are still in her head, or if they are not, I hope they are not supposed to be there anymore. <laughs> right. So, um, so we and just... I, I want to say also, we, we have, we're trying really hard to record more often, but it turns out that all of us are really bad at scheduling. So we're trying to set up a system where we're going to record every Monday, or at least every other Monday. But in the most recent one, Matt decided that he cared more about his marriage than the podcast. Yeah, so sorry about that, everybody. Canceled that. Yeah. Yeah, I should mention that it is January 8th. So Happy New Year to everybody. Merry Christmas. Happy Holidays. Uh, hopefully everybody had a good break. Hopefully you got a break. If you didn't, I'm sorry, and uh, you can drink with us as we talk about this paper that I'm actually really excited about. Speaking of which, what are you drinking, Matt? Uh, so I I don't actually know. Um, sometimes I put things in a decanter, which mm-hmm. I got a decanter for Christmas, and I really like it. And then a bottle of whiskey goes in there, and then slowly I forget what's in it. And so mm. I think maybe it's Bullet. It could be Bullet, the bourbon, not the rye. Um, but... I ran out of it, so I'm pretty sure over the course of this episode, we're going to transition to uh, Chivas. Okay. Yeah, how about, how about you? Well, I went and raided the Harvard Immunology refrigerator because I'm allowed to do that. I and miss I that found, so much. It's pretty great. Um, I found a can of, and I think it's an IPA from Baxter Brewing Company. It's the Stowaway IPA. So there's a nice little, um, what do you call the the pirate and cro- the skull and crossbones? Oh, oh, uh, um, Union Jack. No, thank you. that's no, that's, that's the, the British, British one. Damn it, <laughs> they're sort of like pirates. Something like that. Yeah. Uh, now I can't remember. Yeah. That, that was a nice little cork. I'm definitely going to keep that audio in. Yeah, that's me transitioning to the Shivas, actually. I see. Yeah. Okay. Um, oh, what is the skull and crossbones? Yeah, I don't know. We're not good pirates. I know that. Apparently not. Uh, write into us, please, and let us know. Yeah. It'll come to me eventually. But um, yeah, so I'm trying the Stowaway IPA, and I've got on tap, or not on tap, <laughs> I've got stored in my office so that I don't have to go searching for it. I have a, um, a Torpedo IPA from Sierra Nevada. I've never had about. a bad beer from Sierra Nevada. Every time they've got the uh, Kellerweiss, I think. Mm-hmm up right now um i'm I'm pretty sure that's the name of it and i don't know every time i've gone into a bar and they had something that i didn't know from sierra nevada i always try it because yeah there's just never been a beer that they've made that i have not enjoyed yeah i'm still really sad that they stopped making the glissade yeah that is true that was really wonderful for after a hike in the snowy mountains to go get a bottle of glissade but anyway yeah maybe we should get get to science yeah i think this is better than the weather don't you yeah i i agree Yep. I think the weather, it gets bland. It's uh, maybe not bland. Bland is the wrong word. Everybody's affected by the weather, I suppose, but everybody talks yeah. about the weather. It's true. So. <laughs> <laughs> nice transition the, there. The hard so. transition. The hard transition. Uh, so this is a paper that is, I guess, reasonably topical just because it's come up again in the news, although then it's been in the news, I would say, a fair amount over the last two or three years. But it came up again recently because former president Jimmy Carter was recently diagnosed with glioblastoma. I believe it was a glioblastoma. It was a brain cancer. We don't have Kate here. She would know. She would know. So anyway, it was a brain tumor and it was an aggressive brain tumor. And I think everybody was a little shocked by that. He's an older guy, so not too shocked. But usually these sorts of things tend to end lives abruptly. And I think everybody had come to accept that this was the diagnosis and felt bad about it. And then, what, four to six weeks after that announcement, he came back on the air and essentially said, my cancer is gone. And so people started to discuss, as people have discussed for the last two or three years, exactly what the treatment course looked like, where you take this brain cancer that generally is pretty aggressive and all of a sudden it's gone. And I, I've talked, I think, on this podcast before about contributions that immunologists have made to humanity. 
and I tend to be pretty hard on immunologists. Uh, I include myself among them. Uh, I don't think we've done very much. I think the modern day immunologist looks a lot different than public health people did in the early 1900s. I don't think that we had a lot to do with vaccination development. There's a couple vaccines now that I think maybe we're starting to get a little bit of credit for or we should get a little credit for. But by and large, I don't think immunologists have have really contributed a huge amount to public health as of yet. I, I do believe that we're rapidly approaching that. Yeah, but- it seems like like we have a, an enormous we have a significantly increased understanding of how the immune system works. And and what I like to say all the time is that the immune system is involved in every single human disease, essentially, maybe not entirely, but the immune system has systemic reach. It has all of these really weird and powerful skills. So it reaches into just about every human disease. And yet, despite our increasing knowledge of that, we really haven't applied that knowledge very effectively until the last like five to 10 years. Yeah. And I think a lot of it has just been catching up, to be honest with you. I think that when you're trying to treat human disease, there's obviously a huge application. There's a huge applicational drive. And so people tend to get ahead of themselves. They tend to study and treat with things that they don't quite understand yet. And sometimes it works. And that method of empirical discovery has served humans well for thousands of years now. And I think we're just starting as a community to really understand the underpinnings, as you just mentioned, of of how those empirical things that we've been doing for so long actually might be working. And at some point, we'll catch up and we'll be able to actually start applying the things that we know in a directed way towards human disease. And there are a couple major exceptions, I think, to to what I just said. Like I said, I don't think that we get credit for vaccine development nearly at all. Um, Transplant immunology has helped people. That being said, we discovered basically why things were getting rejected. That has increased survival significantly, I would say. Yeah, I so think we, we know why of- things get rejected so that we can basically match organs that are less likely to get rejected. Right. So we've made transplantation possible, I suppose, uh, but not without significant cost. But I do think that that significant cost is something that we should probably get credit for, which is the discovery of immune suppressants. I think our mechanistic understanding of how the immune system gets turned on and turned off has allowed us to sort of broadly turn off the immune system at specific times. So a good example of this is a common treatment for uh, many autoimmune diseases now. So it's an antibody that basically targets the inflammatory cytokine TNF-alpha. And TNF-alpha is a cytokine that, you know, you get infected and your immune system's trying to turn on and it's trying to get attention. And so you produce a ton of TNF-alpha, everybody responds against it, and all of a sudden you have this big inflammation event that happens. And it turns out the same is true when you're rejecting a transplant. And the same is true when you have an autoimmune disease. Your immune system uses those same pro-inflammatory signals in order to attract unwanted attention. And then all of a sudden you get tissue destruction that you don't look for or that you don't want. So I do think that we get some credit for starting to pick apart the ways that the immune system is turned off or turned on and being able to produce products that uh, allow us to modulate that in a broad way. And I think that that really brings me to what we're going to talk about today. And this is the thing that I think immunologists should start to get a significant amount of credit for as we go forward. Obviously, the people that are working on this, not, you know, schlubs like you and me. But I think that... I resent being called a schlub. (laughs) I I definitely am. So... uh, It's it's probably true. I just resent being called it. That's... Right. So... I think cancer immunology, the immunology of cancer is going to be something that really changes the game. And part of the reason for that is that cancer treatment, as anyone who knows someone that's gone through cancer treatment, as most of us do, uh, cancer treatment is awful. And it's generally nonspecific. I say generally, there are some exceptions to that, but it's generally nonspecific killing of fast growing cells in order to control tumor growth. Yeah, let's let's maybe just pause briefly to describe because I think, you know, probably the people who are listening to a podcast like this know this, but it's worth saying that cancer is basically your own a slight variation in your own cells that creates cells that reproduce uncontrollably. And one of the reasons that it's so hard to deal with, as opposed to a virus or a bacterium or some other 
infectious disease is that it's essentially your own cells. And under most circumstances, it is very hard to target only the cells that are a problem and not wipe out all of your own cells. So most of the treatments, most of the chemotherapies that we've used have been things that target rapidly dividing cells, which also will hit hair follicles, which is why hair falls out with a lot of chemo, also targets the cells of the stomach lining, which is why you have nausea and a whole bunch of other crap associated with that. Um, The non-specificity of most of our effective treatments is effectively like poisoning yourself just enough that you kill the cancer first. And that's not very good. No. In general. And and obviously... And it works better than anything else, but... Than nothing, essentially. And, you know, you have some more targeted targeted treatments. Radiation, for example, where you you literally shoot radioactive waves through particles, I suppose. Radioactive particles through the cancer itself, through the tumor. So there's site-directed... Or like surgery. Poison or surgery, like pulling it out. Generally speaking... It's, it's a bit barbaric. Like the way that yeah. we treat cancer is a bit barbaric. And so anytime that you get a, a treatment that's sort of specific to the tumor, and like you just said, cancer looks a whole lot like you. So it's very hard to target a tumor cell because, you know, it, it's basically you, right? So um, one thing that your immune system is really, really good at as it turns out, and Kevin and I were talking about this just before we recorded, is finding extraordinarily small differences in things. It's sort of designed that way. You can imagine that if your immune system was... It evolved that way. Let's let's stay away from design. That's... uh, All right. (laughs) It evolved, yes. It evolved in a way that, um, that basically allows for really, really fine discernment of targets. And you can imagine that if that wasn't the case, if your immune system sort of only recognized things in broad strokes, then pathogens would come in and use that to their advantage, right? You could have just sort of a general mimicry of a human system and you'd be pretty set to evade all of immunity. So this fine discernment is a tool that your immune system already has at its disposal just in the way that it has developed. So the question is, why isn't the immune system finding these very small variations in cancer cells. And it turns out the answer is it does. Not many people think about cancer as something that that happens relatively frequently, but realistically, cancer is a series of mutations that happens in one of your cells. It probably takes several mutations uh, to the same cell so that different components of how that cell lives and grows and survives are all mutated all at once. And generally speaking, it's understood within the immunological community that your immune system does actually pick up the vast majority of precancerous cells does a pretty good job of identifying that they're a problem and then eventually eliminates them. So we call this sort of immune surveillance of cancer. And generally speaking, it's pretty effective. Most people are not walking around with active cancer and the credit largely goes to your immune system. Yeah, Well, your immune system and also the myriad other ways, the myriad other checkpoints that we have Mm. that block cancer. So we have all kinds of tumor suppressor genes. Cancer is a real threat from an evolutionary perspective. And we've evolved a lot of ways to detect and prevent cancer from developing. And so when someone gets cancer, what that means is that multiple things have broken down. Right. And one of the things that has broken down in almost all tumors by definition is the fact that your immune system has lost the ability to find those minute differences. Yeah. And I I think the point that you made is important. Obviously, each cell individually is pre-programmed to die if any of these things go wrong, right? So this apoptotic pathway that we've talked about before where tumor cells will essentially kill themselves as soon as they sense that themselves, they have gone wrong somehow. I guess what I'm saying is the next step where you have a cell that is growing out of control, uh, doesn't seem to be able to slow itself down, that's when you start to really rely on these external forces. And the immune system is one of those external forces that you rely on. So if that's the case, if The immune system is pretty good at discerning these small differences, and if it's capable of picking out tumor cells that are uh, just slightly different from yourself and they're capable of destroying them, then the question is, why do we even get cancer at all? And the answer seems to be that 
in the same way that your immune system is tightly controlled. Uh, we've talked before about the really specific signals, and I just mentioned before TNF-alpha is an example of one. There are several activating factors of your immune system. There are also several uh, broad dampening factors that are used to make sure that your immune system does not get out of control. And you can imagine that anytime your immune system gets turned on, everything ramps up. A lot of your immune system is sort of based on a feed-forward mechanism. If one thing gets activated, then another thing gets activated, then another thing gets activated. And so you can imagine that that gets pretty out of control quickly. And because of the way the immune system works, you get a lot of reactive oxygen species, which are carcinogenic in and of themselves. You do a lot of local tissue damage. It's really important that you have controls to make sure that once whatever your immune system was doing is done, so let's say you get a pathogen, an infection at the skin, right? You get infiltration of immune cells, uh, neutrophils are exploding everywhere, you've got macrophages killing things, you have T-cell influxes, they're killing things, everybody's dying. At some point, there's no more infectious material. And at that point, it's really important that your immune system can recognize these stop signals that your body uses to make sure that your immune system doesn't go haywire. I also want to want to toss in there that it is also the case that there is sometimes when you have inflammation, like you have a pathogen, you have some insult that doesn't get cleared. And in some cases, from a survival standpoint, it's better to back off and just stop trying to destroy a thing and let it persist rather than continue inflammation because inflammation in and of itself is damaging. If that inflammation is able to clear a pathogen, great. But a lot of times your immune system makes the determination, again, evolution has selected for the ability to make the determination that trying to eliminate that pathogen, that threat, is just not worth the effort. So there's a lot of mechanisms that are built in to sort of tolerate persistent infection as well. And I think that's important because actually cancers will often sort of utilize those mechanisms as well as a way of evading the immune system to basically be like, this is a, a persistent threat and the immune system is like, look, maybe continued inflammation is just more trouble than it's worth. Right. And a, a good example of that is if you look in primates, and primates are still the primary means by which we do HIV research, for example, because unfortunately mice do not get infected with HIV. We do not have a good mouse model. And people talk about humanized mice. I think we have before. They're okay. They, they can do some things. But the fact of the matter is that primate, non-human primate trials are really uh, the only way to get at a lot of these questions. And if you actually go into macaques, it's reasonable to ask, are these, are these other species uh, infected by these kinds of viruses? And if so, how do they handle them? And it turns out that they are and they're actually infected a lot more than we are by retroviruses similar to HIV, but they just don't respond. And it turns out that that is a much more effective way of dealing with many of these viruses than the active response. So sterile immunity is not always the best way for an organism to survive and persist and have offspring. I guess that's the, the general point. So... So we've mentioned now these dampening signals. Uh, Kevin just mentioned these chronic infections that sometimes take advantage of these dampening signals. And I mentioned that uh, when you get an infection at like a skin site, your skin has to be able to tell your immune system at some point, there's no more bacteria here. You need to stop, right? And that stop signal comes from some very specific signaling cascades. Uh, one of the most recent and exciting discoveries in that has been this PD-1, PD-L1 blockade that we'll be talking a little bit about today. And PD-1, PD-L1 is a system that was discovered, I don't know, 15 years ago, 10, 15 years ago in mice. I think it was about that. But basically, it was discovered by researchers that were interested in this sort of chronic fatigue that Kevin was talking about before. You're, you're looking at T-cell activation at the site of an infection, and if you follow that out for years in the case of something like tuberculosis, what you find is that tuberculosis can live in someone's lungs for a very long time. It doesn't always lead to active TB, and what your body does rather than trying to clear it because it tries for a while and it, it turns out it can't, what you'll do is you'll sort of wall off that TB infection in your lung and you'll form something called a granuloma. And a granuloma is a really interesting thing where you've got sort of a, a group of infected cells at the center of this ball. And just outside the infected cells, you've got all of these macrophages and monocytes, and they're trying desperately to eat up, chew up, you know, destroy. 
And then outside of that group of macrophages, you've got a group of T cells that are all sort of egging on the macrophages. You know, you can do it. Produce IL-12. You can totally do this. And at the end, everybody just gets tired. You know, you spend a year doing that and you just get tired. And they started to look at what made these T cells tired. And it turned out that there was this really potent signal that these T cells were getting that were inhibitors of activation, essentially. And one of those potent inhibitors was this PD-1, PD-A-1 signal. And so let's let's describe what that actually is. So this yeah. is a pair of molecules, one of which is expressed on the T cell itself upon activation. So one of the first things that gets turned on when a T cell gets activated is its member. And I always forget which, if the T cell has PD-1 or if it has PD-L1. doesn't L matter for the, the purposes ligand. of this. I, yeah. I never remember, but it turns on this molecule and then the tissue around it will slowly start to increase expression of the other molecules. So PD-1, PD-L1 is this pair of molecules that bind to each other. And the consequence of that binding is a signal to the T cell to suppress activation. So T cell might be getting other activating signals through its T cell receptor, through other activating receptors, but the PDL1 is sending a sort of concurrent inhibitory signal. And the balance of those activating signals versus uh, the inhibitory signals is what determines whether the T cell is activated. And essentially, over the course of an infection, the T cell is getting more and more signal saying, stop, stop, stop. And eventually, even if you have a really strong activating signal, eventually that inhibitory signal just overwhelms the activating signal and says, okay, we can't go further. Uh, and, you know, evolutionarily, the purpose has been more inflammation is not going to do us any good, clearly. So just stop. And so why are we talking about this? Well, we're talking about this because if you look again at these chronic infections, what you'll find is huge expressions of PDL or PD-1 on the surface of T cells, huge expression of PDL1 in the surrounding environment. And it turns out that, as Kevin just mentioned, that's a really powerful control of the T cell activation system. It turns it, it turns an active infection scenario, an active response scenario into a scenario where you sort of get this granuloma, but the infection doesn't spread. Your lungs don't get torn to pieces because of an active immune response. And you sort of just go about your business as a normal human. So if you start to look at a tumor environment, we mentioned before that one of the really critical things that a tumor has to do in order to become a productive, metastatic, pervasive tumor is it has to find a way to eliminate immune response against it. And tumors get mutations. There's aberrant expression all over the place. They express lots of genes that they shouldn't be expressing. They don't express a lot of genes that they should be expressing. It turns out that one of the genes that aggressive tumors will express in order to keep the immune system at bay is high levels of pdl one And so if you're looking at a tumor and saying, why isn't the immune system getting in there? You know, why aren't my T cells responding? Why aren't, why am I not getting the normal response, the normal tumor clearance that, you know, is so important in normal surveillance? The answer in many cases, uh, especially in specific types of cancer, is that you're getting expression of these sort of turned down signals that limit immune response in those sites. And so, as people started to recognize how these T cells were being tuned down, they started to look into specific tumors. And it turns out that melanoma, for example, and probably uh, the cancer that Jimmy Carter had, if you looked at those tumors, you did a biopsy and you did a gene expression array, what you'd find is huge expression levels of the turned down signal PDL1. And so this is something that uh, I think was. A, a little slow to develop because immunotherapy for cancer, you know, directed uh, with antibodies, usually it's been antibody-based historically. You know, can you get an antibody to be produced against these tumors? They haven't always worked all that well, but this this was a bit of a game changer. And if you start to take a look back at the last four or five years, several different drugs have started to come online that don't target the tumor directly. Instead, what they do is they target the interaction of PD-1, PD-L1, and they target the interaction of other inhibitory signals. And actually, the first one that came online was targeting a molecule called CTLA-4. And CTLA-4 is another molecule that T cells will use 
in order to kind of dampen their response, right? You get heavy T-cell activation, and pretty quickly after the T-cell gets activated, it'll start expressing CTLA-4, which sort of auto-turns down its own response. It's sort of a self-check. And I guess the idea has been over the last 5, 10 years, well, if we know that these checks on the immune system exist, but we know that these cancer environments really need immune infiltration, what happens if we just pull off the brakes a little bit? You know, we have to make the assumption that T cells and other immune cells are capable of targeting these tumors. This is what they're built for. So what happens if we, yeah, what if, what happens if we pull off the brakes and, and just see what happens? Yeah. Before we go on, I just want to return a little bit to something you said earlier about the general failure of immunotherapy for cancer in the past and, you know, melanoma as a specific target. And so when I was a technician at the Scripps Research Institute back in like 2005, I remember going to this talk where a guy showed this new treatment for melanoma where they were taking antibodies that recognized what are called neoantigens. So these are uh, new epitopes that are created because of the mutations that happen in cancer that produce targets for the immune system. And he had an antibody against this neoantigen expressed on melanoma cells, and they were coupling these antibodies to radioactive isotopes. And the idea was rather than just blasting a tumor with radiation, you could actually use antibodies to direct radiation directly to the tumor. And they had these amazing figures. We have these like football-sized tumors that would shrink to nothing over the course of weeks of treatment. Absolutely incredible. And I remember thinking in this talk, I was like, oh my God, this dude has cured cancer. And then like two or three years later, I remember seeing a paper where somebody had attached these little nanospheres that contained chemotherapeutic agents. And again, you coupled them to antibodies, targeted to melanoma, huge reductions in tumor burden. And then a couple of years later, people were targeting like bee venom, attaching them to antibodies. And basically these same approaches, using antibodies to target things that are killing stuff with antibodies, and it's always against melanoma or like a handful of other small, of cancers. And one of the things that I started to realize is that it turns out that melanoma, compared to most other tumors, creates a lot of these neoantigens. So they create targets. They're just, for some reason, I don't know the mechanism behind it, but melanoma tends to produce a lot of epitopes that are recognizable by the immune system. There are a lot of tumors that don't do this or don't do this nearly as much. So oftentimes melanoma is used as a proof of principle. And for antibodies, whatever that epitope is has to be on the outside surface of a cell. So if you want to use an antibody to target a tumor, that neoantigen has to be expressed on the outside of a cell, which drastically limits your potential target pool. The nice thing about T cells is that the antigen can potentially be from any protein that the cell produces. So there's a lot wider pool of potential targets. Melanoma is still going to be at the top in terms of uh, of neoantigen production, but this potential therapy where you're using T cells rather than antibodies or B cells has a lot more potential uh, uh, usability. Right. And utility. I think the, uh, the big difference there too is that you have to assume, so when you're creating your B venom targeting antibody, right? The assumption is that the target of this antibody will exist on this cancer, right? You you are designing the antibody with a specific target in mind, right? And you're delivering something that you know will kill that cancer and and that works great so long as that cancer has that target. The and as you just mentioned, the real problem is you you can't get those sorts of targets on every cancer and each person is different, each tumor is different, everybody's gonna be expressing different cancers with different neoepitopes, and so the idea that you're going to produce this huge number of specifically targeting antibodies that are going to come together, it just it's too much. But what you can do instead is you can rely on the fact that the immune system is more than capable of identifying these really small changes, even if they're so small that you as a researcher would not have picked them out. Right. And so if instead you just sort of boost the immune system, like I said before, and I'm going to use this metaphor a bunch of times because I think it's apt, you take the brakes off the immune system temporarily and you basically say to the T cells, you know what? Something's there. We really need you to kill it and I need you to go nuts for a while. 
and you provide those signals, your immune system is just infinitely more capable of pulling out those new targets that you would not have seen as a researcher. So with that, the paper uh, that we're interested in talking about today was a New England Journal of Medicine paper. It was published very recently. Uh, the last author is J.D. Uh, Wolchuk, and the first author was Jay Larkin. There's a lot so, of co-authors on this paper. Clinical papers tend to have a lot of co-authors, it seems, because you need people that deal with the patients, that deal with the samples, that are doing the immunology behind it. It's, yeah. it's a big so, collaborative effort. Yeah, it's it's a huge study. Um, you're talking about a whole lot of patients that were enrolled in this. I believe uh, 945 patients in this study were enrolled. But the majority of this work and the analysis afterwards is coming out of Sloan Kettering in New York and the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston. And we should say the name. So the name is Combined Nivolumab and Ipilimumab or monotherapy in untreated melanoma. And so those names that are a pain in the ass to say, nivolumab and ipilimumab are both uh, what are called monoclonal antibody therapies. So MAB at the end of a drug name is a pretty great clue that it's a monoclonal antibody therapy. Yeah. And so my, my wife recently told me, uh, I think I mentioned before on this podcast that she's a clinician and she's an ophthalmologist. And I... She only recently told you that? No, she told me a long time <laughs> ago, but I think I mentioned. No, but she told me that um, these... Uh, the long drug names, the unpronounceable names, are a marketing tool. And the reason that they're given the names that they're given is because the the drug names themselves, when they go to market, are not called this. So if you go into your pharmacy and you purchase one of these drugs, it won't come back as this name. It will come, thing, come back as something much more pronounceable and understandable like a Batacept. And so by making the names difficult to both read and comprehend, they sort of ensure that their brand's name is used rather than the general drug name. So bastards. Yeah, exactly. The two drugs that you just mentioned, nivolumab and ipilimumab, apologize, it's going to be a mouthful and I'll stumble over it a bunch of times. These are two of the first chemoimmunotherapeutics or cancer oncoimmunotherapeutics, I suppose. They are targeting these two checkpoints that we recently talked about in, in the lead up to this. The first, and this was, I believe, the first licensed treatment of this kind, the ipilimumab, is a target of CTLA-4, or it targets, excuse me, CTLA-4. So it essentially boosts a T-cell's ability to respond by eliminating the T-cell's interaction with negative signaling events. Right, and we should say we should say what the, what these antibodies are doing is they are binding to this molecule on the cell surface and preventing it from in interacting with its partner molecule. Right. So without that binding, the signal that that molecule typically produces, the inhibitory signal into the T cell, is blocked. Right. And this is different. People people sometimes use there are CTLA four antibodies or other antibodies to cell surface T-cell molecules that can activate a receptor by doing things like cross-linking. And there's like different ways that antibodies act. But these ones, what they're doing is they're binding to the receptor and then they are blocking it. They're allosterically inhibiting the ligand from being bound such that whatever signal that would normally produce is prevented because it's not actually able to bind to its ligand anymore. Right, right. So you got a T cell at the, at the outside of a tumor. It's expressing huge amounts of CTLA-4. It's expressing huge amounts of PD-1. And it's getting a lot of negative signaling from the tumor from those two receptors. And you've got an antibody now that you're going to stick in that's going to bind to CTLA-4 or bind to PD-1. And it's going to prevent those signals from being translated from the tumor into the T cell. So essentially, you've got these T cells just waiting around for an activation signal, and you're going to give it to them by just pulling off all those negative signals. So these two drugs, uh, ipilimumab and nivolumab, are similar in their action. They both target uh, in, uh, inhibitors, receptor inhibitors of, of T cell activation. So they're both basically doing the same kind of thing. You're targeting both CD4 and CD8 T cells that are sitting around this tumor microenvironment that are trying to respond but just can't. So as I mentioned before, ipilimumab, the CTLA-4 blockade, was the first drug that sort of came online 
that use this kind of approach for, for tumor therapy. But I would say the more exciting research recently, and a lot of the press recently, has been around the second one, uh, nivolumab. And it turns out that there are several versions of nivolumab depending on who's producing it. So yeah, so this is going to be uh, Bristol-Myers-Squibb's version of the PD-1 blockade, of which now basically any company that's invested in immunotherapy for cancer. And even uh, some that aren't. And even some that aren't, they are all producing these antibodies because everybody is extraordinarily excited about how well these things are working. So I went back uh, as we we took a minor break in the recording. You may or may not have heard it and checked to see Jimmy Carter's uh, metastatic cancer. And it turns out that was a melanoma, Hmm. which means that they were using these drugs on label. At this point, these drugs have been approved and have been shown to be very effective against disseminated stage four melanoma. And for those of you that don't follow the melanoma field, (laughs) uh, these are cancers, these disseminated melanomas, these are cancers that previous to these drugs, no one ever survived. I mean, do you remember we, we got, there was a lecture a while back that we both went to, I think, and there was a woman from Columbia who was one of the attending physicians that was sort of chosen to roll out one of these drugs. And I remember the lecture really clearly because it was a terrible lecture. It was incredibly (laughs) boring. But at the end of it, there was this survival curve of people. And these are people... So when you first roll out a cancer drug, you don't know how the drug's going to work. And obviously, there's a standard of care that you use with patients with end-stage cancers, essentially. And so you don't want... This sounds terrible. You don't want to give a new drug that you don't know if it will work to a patient that you believe has a fighting chance. And so when you see the rollout of these cancer drugs, they're often tested on stage three, stage four, heavily disseminated, massive tumor burdens, people that really are are unfortunately in the end phases of their lives. Yeah, these are these are people that are essentially donating their last weeks to science. They're like we know that we're going to die without intervention. So we're willing to take the risk that whatever drug you give me is going to be terrible because, you know, regardless, I've only got a couple weeks to live. So might as well. Right. And so, you know, the expectations of a cancer drug in the early phases of trials are actually very low because these cancer patients are so, they're, they're just so bad off, unfortunately, when you start the trial that any improvement in these patients or even the stabilization of disease is considered a major win. And I remember her presenting one of her last slides and it was survival curves over time. And these patients who essentially, like you said, last couple weeks of life you had complete responders in the group. And a complete responder, I actually had to look it up after the... A complete responder is someone that eliminates the cancer and there is no sign of cancer left. Yeah. I mean, you're you're talking about someone who's just cured of stage four melanoma. And uh, it's the first time anything like that has been seen in cancer biology, uh, certainly cancer immunology. And so these are really powerful things. And so as these things have been rolled online, especially now the PD-1, PD-L1 blockade, there's been a fair amount of fanfare. And I think that the Jimmy Carter thing really rolled it up. But as every single con- company in the world <laughs> is trying to ramp up their, uh, their immuno-oncology department, it's start to come to the forefront, okay, well, can we use these things? Do we have to use them separately? Can we use them in combination? You know, what are the best ways that we can target the immune system in order to really, you know, in a in a short burst, pull the brakes off and get T cells to recognize the cancer? And as you mentioned way back in the beginning of the intro, the immune system is systemic which means that if you are successful in getting a T cell to actively respond to a tumor microenvironment at one site, that tumor will be cleared because your immune system is incredibly robust. And not only that, that T cell is then going to go systemically and clones of it are going to go systemically. And it's going to target that cancer, not only at the site that it was recognized, but also every other site that that cancer looks the same. So it's an incredibly powerful tool. And so this paper that we're looking at now is essentially, it's a, like I said, New England Journal of Medicine, so pretty high impact paper, looking at the combination of uh, nivolumab and ipilimumab. So looking at what happens when you take 
stage three or yeah, stage three, stage four melanomas, and you treat them with either an anti-CTLA-4, an anti-PD-1, or both of those at the same time. And it's worth noting, I think, when we get into this, I mean, we think we should dive into the data a little specifically, but the real money figure is figure one, where they show the survival curves. You'll notice they don't have, the way that we would if we did this in mice, they don't have the non-treatment control, which from a scientific standpoint would be nice to see, but basically we know that patients that don't get any intervention, they're going to die. So ethically, we don't actually, it is not ethical to withhold treatment from a cohort so that we can see that comparison. But we're looking at these survival curves where you see the number of people that survive after different numbers of months and basically imagine the survival curve with no treatment and you're looking at basically everyone dying within one or two months. Yeah, so so it would be zero. Yeah, all of these treatments are improving lives at least right. a little bit. You know what made me selfishly excited about this paper is the control groups because there are, you know, there are papers if you look back at the at the rollouts of these immunotherapies, the control groups now are the immunotherapies by themselves. Right. They recognize now that the best way to treat uh, to treat a stage 3, stage 4 melanoma is through these immunotherapies and the question is not, you know, should we revert back to chemo because you should not. At this stage, the question is whether a combination of these therapies is more effective. And so I, I have to say that I was pretty excited to see that. Yeah. So I mentioned before that we had a whole bunch of patients that were, uh, that were pulled into this study. So we're looking at 945 patients. We have three groups of patients that they're broken down into. Uh, one treatment group is the nivolumab alone, so that's the PD-1 blockade. One is the ipilimumab alone, that's the anti-CTLA-4 blockade. And then we have a nivolumab plus ipilimumab study group, essentially, for a total of 945, and that was in a one-to-one-to-one -one -to -one ratio. So we've got a little more than 300 patients in each of these groups. Yeah, how much of this do you want to go through? <laughs> yeah. So we don't have to talk too much. Uh, first figure is essentially just characteristics of the patients that were enrolled. There is often a skewing of patients, unfortunately, in these clinical trials. It's long been a criticism of science that in order to impose controls on a study like that, you like this, you select a group of patients that all sort of look and are the look the same and are of the same gender. It looks like there's about a two to one male to female ratio in each of these groups, which is not terrible, which it means that basically there's at least a hundred women in each of these groups. So that's not terrible. Uh, not a good indication of what the, uh, what the racial backgrounds of these people are. So no way to know really if PD-1, PD-L1 is expressed at higher levels for example, in an African-American community versus a Caucasian community. But I'm sure all of these things, well, hopefully all of these things will be looked at in follow-up studies. I was sort of shocked at the age range here that you have, I didn't realize, normally cancers are more prevalent in people that are older. Uh, and I thought that this was the case, or at least for most cancers, and I thought this was the case for melanoma, but we've got patients as young as 18 in some of these trials, which is sort of shocking yeah. to me. And this is one of the things that I think really pushes melanoma to the forefront of cancer immunology and, and cancer biology in general is it turns out that sun exposure is a very real risk factor to people. And a couple third degree burn events by the sun, I mean, it's it's staggering actually how much you increase your risk. So I guess the public service announcement for today is if you have a mole that looks like it's growing out of control, please get it checked out because just because you're 27 doesn't mean it's not melanoma. Seriously. Um, so on more exciting and optimistic notes, we move on to figure two, which is... It's actually figure the, one because the first uh, thing yeah, is a table. Table, I suppose. So figure one, figure one. And the title of this figure is progression-free survival. And as Kevin mentioned before, if you're not talking about treatment with these immunotherapies, the progression-free survival would be essentially zero. So please, in your mind, compare all of these curves to something where everyone dies within two or three months. And I should say that a lot of the terms in these clinical trials are somewhat opaque, at least to me. And so the actual definition of progression-free survival, the patients that are enrolled in these treatments or in these studies 
are at the maximum stage, right? There's stage three and stage four. There is no stage five. So basically, you can think about this as survival. If you were looking at earlier stage tumors, and studies do this, where they're looking at stage one tumors and seeing can we prevent progression to later stages, there, progression-free survival means something real. It says we didn't go from stage one to stage two, or we didn't go from stage two to stage three. Here, what we're talking about is really just, did this patient live, Yeah, more or less? And you know what the really heartening piece of this figure is? that this study is not done. They're still carrying out this study. This is a preliminary report as to the progress of the study, which is really heartening because we're at least 24 months out now from the initiation of this study. And the fact that a stage three, stage four melanoma patient is surviving to where the study can continue at 24 months post initial treatment is astounding. Yeah. So so let's get that out of the way. Uh, but if we do look at the results from the figure, so we're looking at A, we're talking about progression-free survival, looking at ipilimumab group. And this has been reported before. With ipilimumab, it looks like our survival is somewhere around 15 to 18%. And that's pretty stable. By the time you get to 16, 17 months, about 15 to 18% have survived the treatment course. With nivolumab, uh, we're looking at closer to 35%, it looks like. Is that a reasonable? Mm -hmm. Somewhere around 35%. A um, little bit lower, believe it or not, with the combination therapy, the nivolumab plus ipilimumab. And we'll talk about why that might be in just a little bit, or I'll pontificate and extrapolate stuff that I know nothing about. So, Yeah, but, but worth noting that that's the end point throughout most of the treatment course you actually have better survival with the combination treatment. Right. So, which with this large number, like with the sample size this large is actually fairly significant. Unfortunately for this type of plot, we don't have error bars because we're just looking at the sum total of the data and we don't really have confidence intervals, but we can see that the combination therapy throughout most of the course of treatment is actually quite good. Uh, yeah, and there's it is very good. A pretty significant drop off around 16 months that I don't fully understand. But but the point is, is that actually nivolumab by itself is actually really, really friggin' good. Really solid, right? Yeah. Really, really solid. So you go on to B, and so that's A, and basically, if you just had A, it would be deserving of a New England Journal of Medicine paper where you show essentially that you know these treatments are working really, really well. But then you go into B, which is a more specific, uh, I guess it's a more specific assay of what these therapies are really doing in these patients. So people talk a lot about individualized or personalized medicine, right? That's a, it's sort of a catchphrase that's being thrown around a lot in the media. Personalized medicine is an interesting idea generally, but when you're talking about oncology, it's particularly interesting in that each individual tumor is going to have its own specific signature, right? A tumor is a screw up. It's a screw up that started producing genes it wasn't supposed to. It stopped responding to stop signals that it was supposed to respond to, and somehow it found a way to get around the immune system. And so as a screw-up, it's going to be different than the screw-up next to it, right? So there are lots of different ways that you can prevent the immune system from infiltrating the tumor, but tumors tend to come, especially melanomas, tend to come up upon the same solutions every time or, or similar solutions every time. And so you can assess tumors that were producing specifically pdl one in order to control immune response. And so if you start to look at tumors that use this pdl one expression as the way that they prevented immune response, your responses go up when you start to talk about a PD-1 blockade. So now when we're talking about ipilimumab, we're still down around the 10 to 20% range as before. But if you look at your nivolumab, now your survival rating long-term, 24 months out, you're approaching, actually 17 months out, excuse me, you're approaching 50%, right? So if you have a tumor that's expressing large amounts of PDL1, surprise, surprise, an anti-PD-1 treatment is probably going to be in your cards. But the shocking thing really is that in figure C, they look at PDL1 negative tumors mm -hmm. and you still have a 30% survival at 19 months with sure. an anti-PD-1 blockade, which, you know, if we're thinking that 
you know, Matt has been talking about like praising immunologists. And I think that it's justified that we say like, actually, immunology has influenced this treatment in a really fundamental and important way. But it turns out that tumors that don't express pdl one which you would think a priori would not respond to anti-PDL1 therapy, turns out they do respond. So that's maybe a little confusing and there's there's probably good reasons for it. But it's worth noting that these therapies are actually really, really effective, even in situations where you wouldn't necessarily expect them to be effective. Yeah. And so following that up, I would suggest, and this was always a quote that was used, and unfortunately, I don't know who to attribute it to. So I'm sure somebody will write in and let us know who exactly that is. But there is a famous quote out there that says it's better to consider uh, cancer as a chronic infection. And so I would suggest that even if the tumor is not producing PDL1, even if, you know, those levels are relatively low, the fact that you've had a tumor growing in the site that it's growing at for a long period of time, probably early on in the tumor's life uh, life cycle, there was inflammation, there was active inflammation, and the immune system was trying to respond. And so what happens is at some point, the skin or whatever environment in the melanoma, it's going to be the dermal layers, the epidermal layers, all of those things. I would imagine that those cells still respond as per normal. And the way that those cells would normally respond is by producing PDL1 and making sure that the immune system doesn't destroy the entire tissue. Yeah, absolutely. So I wonder if it's it's the stroma around the tumor. And I can tell you that there's a huge field of immunology out there now looking at the stromal biology of cancer and how your body sort of unfortunately contributes to the problem of the engraftment of this tumor. So anyway, regardless, nivolumab seems like a pretty sweet bet. (laughs) Honestly, if you have this late stage melanoma, uh, which formally kills you at two to three months, you're looking at a 30%, even if your tumor is PD-L1 negative, you're looking at a 30% survival rating over 20 months, which to me is just absolutely incredible. Uh, Yeah. I think it's it's really really cool. Yeah, and maybe we should sort of speed through the rest of this because I we're getting over an hour here in recording time. But so figure two is a series of what are called waterfall plots, and this is just basically a way of showing for basically showing every patient individually in one figure, and you basically show what the percent change in the size of tumors was over time, and it turns out that combination therapy actually has the best response in terms of the the percentage of patients that have either no change or a negative change in their tumor burden, which is slightly different than the progression-free survival curves where in some cases the single therapy actually seemed to be better, but the combination therapy seems to reduce or or halt progression in much lar- larger percentage of cases. Right. I would like to back up really quickly okay. to table two, just because in these... So you've got these three treatment groups, right? You've got the two mono treatment groups, right? And nivolumab and ipilimumab. So it looks like you're you're basically getting a table looking at the number of responses of patients in each of these groups, right? And so we talked about complete responses and complete responses are essentially the elimination of tumor burden. And so you're already starting to see where the combination therapy works here. You're getting an increase of at least, I don't know, two and a half percent of people. It's pretty similar to the pdl one treatment alone, but that's fine. The partial responders is really what gets me and it's why I wanted to point this out. So your partial responders in the pdl one treatment alone is about 35%. If you add in the anti-CDLA-4 blockade, it bumps to 45%. And the reason that I bring that up is because if you look at the total patient pool and you look at the total patient pool that went from cancers that are going to kill you to cancers that are at least stable, you're bumping from about 55% with the PDO one blockade alone to what is that close to 60%, 70%, 70%, right? So, so the ability to stabilize disease at least with these Two treatments in combination is significantly increased over the PDO one blockade alone. And I would argue that a 60 to 70% stabilization rate, at least in patients that are as dire as these patients are, is a pretty incredible result. Yeah, you're talking about, I mean, the fact that we're going from a, a disease that is going to kill you to 10% of people being cured 
legitimately cured. It's pretty and, remarkable. And, and another 60% that are not going to die in those three months, right? right. Like it's... No, it's it's a it's a remarkable paper. Yeah. And you know, other papers obviously have shown this uh with the individual treatments alone, but it's yeah, it's just a really cool field and I hope that it continues to progress at the rate that it's currently progressing. Yeah. The the last thing the last point that I kind of want to make though is that as great as these things are, mm-hmm. yeah. they are not without issues. And so, nope. you know, we talked about chemotherapies in general as basically being poisoning the body just enough to kill the cancer before the patient dies. And one of the risks of using these sorts of therapies, though probably less than just a blanket, like we're going to kill every dividing cell, these still do have problems. And, you know, if you're going to die, a little auto autoimmunity or autoinflammation is not necessarily a bad thing, comparatively speaking. But the, the last table in the paper is actually showing the adverse events. And it's sort of incredible with all of these treatments, the reporting of adverse events attributed to the therapy is basically 100%. Like every single patient that is getting these therapies, this isn't like taking an aspirin. Like no, you have severe comorbidities that happen with these treatments that are really unpleasant. Diarrhea, rashes, nausea, vomiting, all kinds of, you know, hyperthyroidism, like a bunch of things that are really terrible. Right. And and I would say that a lot of those treatments or a lot of those side effects are side effects that you're going to hear if you're talking about normal chemotherapies. Yeah, absolutely. But I think that the really interesting ones are the ones that don't necessarily show up under normal chemotherapies, right? So there is a small but significant amount of hypothyroidism. Mm -hmm. There is a reasonable rate, actually a large rate of colitis, you know, and these are things that we traditionally ascribe as autoimmune problems, right? right? So colitis is uh, an out of control inflammation of the gut lining caused by the immune system. And as good as T cells are, at targeting that tumor, unfortunately, if you pull the brakes off your entire immune system for any amount of time, the environments that T cells are normally active and working in, those environments can get screwed up. And so these therapies are huge. I think they're really incredible. They're saving people that had no hope of being saved before, but we as immunologists can't really give ourselves too much of a pat on the back yet because just like we were talking about at the beginning where an anti-TNF-alpha therapy sort of dampens the entire immune system, these anti-PDL1 blockades are great in activating the immune system, but they're activating them in a very, very broad way. And so we still have, unfortunately, all the problems that are associated with an overactive immune system in these patients. And those problems are occurring in this case in patients that are severely problematic to begin with. And so colitis is not a small deal in a person with stage four melanoma. And I imagine if you go back to the initial figure where you're looking at treatment outcomes. If you've got, I think there's what a treatment. Yeah. So the last, the last line of table three is treatment related adverse events leading to discontinuation. And unfortunately, the number for the combined treatment is about 29.4%. So almost 30% of patients that had this combined treatment and remember those combined treatment groups were doing really well at the beginning of this study and all of a sudden nearing the end there was a drop-off that we couldn't explain. I imagine part of the explanation for those drop-offs is that this therapy is so aggressive and it does such broad things to the immune system that they could not continue. And so we're getting there, I would say. You know, this is a real route of investigation that should be explored. And I think that we have the ability to do a lot of good in this realm, but specificity is king. And like you were talking about with bee venom, specificity in cancer will always be king. And can we pull the brakes off of a system in a more specific way? How can we target this cancer in particular? Can we get you into the clinic 
can we pull your tumor, know exactly what mechanism your tumor is is using in order to subvert the immune system? And can we give you only the treatments that are most likely to be effective in the shortest amount of time possible? And I think that that's really where this field needs to and will go. Mm -hmm. I agree. And with that, this has been Audio Immunity. And we're not saying episode names now because we're going to try to record or episode numbers. So we're going to try to record a lot and then eventually post, eventually post them potentially out of order. Thankfully, most of the stuff that we say is not necessarily time dependent. Although when Kate is here, I guess when she does pop culture references, those might go out of date. But uh, I need to find my notes about what I'm supposed to say at the end. The organization of our website and of our like back channel notes really needs to improve. Oh, it's got awful. (laughs) It's got awful. And I take one third responsibility for the awfulness. Yeah. (laughs) Well, okay. You know what? I'm just going to wing it because I can't find it. So we are Audio Immunity and you can find us at immunity.org. There you can find links to subscribe to us in iTunes or an RSS feed that you can use to subscribe to us in any other podcast app. Please leave a rating for us on iTunes because it really helps our visibility. We also have a Facebook page now. And if you would like to comment, talk to us, please leave us a comment on Facebook. We will definitely see those. You can also send comments uh, to us through our website uh, and by emailing us at comments at immunity.org. I think I think that's the correct email address. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, well, it's I something get, like I that. Get, I get a filtered version of those emails. <laughs> yeah, I basically, I screen them for the ones that make me look good. Yeah. So, like, 95% positive it's comments at community.org. <laughs> uh, but you can definitely find a form on our website to send us comments. And there's only, like, 100 or 150 people that subscribe to our RSS feed right now. So if you send us email, we are going to see it, and we're going to read it, and we're going to respond to it. We spent like half of an episode responding to Lewis's comment about the pronunciation of apoptosis. Yeah, there's go- so. there's going to be a mini-sode on <laughs> apoptosis very soon, so look out for that, Lewis. So the point is, is that we care and we want to talk to you. So please let us know if you have any comments or questions or want to complain about our pronunciation of any words. Uh, particularly words that I pronounce correctly and Matt and Kate screw up. And the the music at the beginning and the end of the show is composed by Rachel Reinick, and we'll see you next time. See you later. Mm -hmm.